The following podcast contains movie spoilers, unpopular opinions, and outdated pop cultural references. In three, two, one. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world, and welcome to Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. I'm your host, Josh Dassel, and on Subgenre, we give love to films outside of the major categories. It's season one, and that means all of our selections are in, without a doubt, my favorite film subgenre of all time, and one certainly worthy of the title of this show. That's right, we're talking submarine movies. And in this episode, we're tackling one of the all-time subfilm classics, the 1990 political action thriller starring Alec 30 Rock Baldwin and the late Sir Sean, you the man now, dog, Connery. Directed by diehards John McTiernan, it's The Hunt for Red October. With me today to break things down is our guest host. He's a film aficionado, a music geek, an unashamed John McTiernan fan, and a self-described person wholly unqualified to critique this film. Hello, Deep Thought. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me. Very excited to talk about submarine films, Absolutely. about this film in particular. So excited. Are you or have you been a submarine movie fan the same way as me? Let me tell you, uh, when I finally convinced my parents to get a hi-fi VHS player back in the 90s with ProLogic Surround, the first movie we watched was Crimson Tide, okay? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> I kind of kicked off my appreciation of kind of home theater with uh, sub-genre film. I am, so, I am pretty go. sure back in the day they issued Crimson Tide with, with any surround sound uh, <laughs> uh, uh, kit that you could be buying. Uh, absolutely an awesome movie. One we are actually going to cover here on Subgenre uh, later this season, so everybody stay tuned for that. Spoiler alert. Yeah, man, so uh, Hunt for Red October. Let's get started. Let's talk about what in the world this movie is. I can't imagine anyone has not seen this film, but if they haven't, let's talk a bit about it. Yeah, based on a f novel by Tom Clancy of the same name, this is the first and only film to feature Alec Baldwin as Jack Ryan. Nominated for three Oscars, Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, and winner of the Best Sound Effects Editing. That's the one you give to an action film when you can't think of any other way to award it, you give it Best Sound Effects Editing. But good on them. Uh, $30 million budget, that's big for 1989, 1990, and it was the sixth top-grossing domestic film of that year earning $122 million at the North American box office and more than $200 million worldwide. Which is way more than I earned in 1990. Now, this was not that many years, I guess, after Top Gun came out. When Top Gun came out, the Navy was gung-ho about helping them out and, and showing off those fighter planes and lending them all this stuff because they, they were like, we're definitely going to get people signing up to be fighter pilots off, off of Top Gun. And it, I think, if I read it correctly, that they, that's what they were hoping they were doing with Hunt for Red October. Yeah, I mean, uh, from what I understand, there were actually recruiting booths set up at the theaters. Uh, they were certainly hopeful that this would be the top gun of submarine movies. Yeah, that, that's what that's what you want to do is you want to get the 12 year olds coming out of the matinee, uh, get them well, get them early, make them submariners. The critical response was mixed. You know, Roger Ebert gave it a fairly glowing review, and he was an important voice, a critical voice back in the day, but I don't think everybody loved it uh, as much as he did. You know what? Roger Ebert was right, and the rest of them were wrong. Uh, yeah, it's an awesome it. movie. That's why we're talking. Right. Say right. Suck, <laughs> suck it, all you critics out there. I guess that means it's time for our feature presentation.
Our feature presentation is where we're going to walk you through this movie, dear listener, take you from the start to the finish. Uh, There will be spoilers. This is a show about the movies. We are going to talk about the movie from the inside out. And so if you have not seen the movie or if you have seen the movie and forgot about it and want to watch it again, uh, or if you just don't like spoilers, don't listen to this part of the show, but we hope that you do and stay with it. So The Hunt for Red October is this cool political action thriller starring Alec Baldwin as a low-level CIA analyst who is trying to save a Russian submarine captain that may or may not be trying to defect to the United States, uh, but either way is being hunted by both the U.S. and the Soviet navies. Kind of a cool concept, don't you think, Deep Thought? Yeah, man. Uh, I mean, that really sets itself up for some real fun. So let's talk plot. It starts back in November of 1984, kind of right in the middle of the Cold War. Uh, we're watching uh, Sean Connery as Marco Ramius and his second in command, uh, Vasily Borodin, played by actor Sam Neill. Who we later saw uh, as the lead in uh, Jurassic Park. In Jurassic Park, exactly. So he's going to go on to big things. Uh, they are on this brand new Russian submarine. Uh, It's a nuke sub. It is one that the world has never seen, and they are supposed to be taking it out really on a... I don't know, kind of a kind of a victory lap. They're going out into the ocean to conduct some exercises to show it off, but that may not be exactly what's going to happen in uh, in, in this particular movie because if we cut back to Washington D.C., we're seeing our our CIA analyst Jack Ryan uh, meeting with James Earl Jones, Darth Vader, voice of CNN, who is the deputy director of the CIA, and he's told, "Hey, this sub has mystery doors." Figure out what these doors are. Yeah, and so, of course, he turns to an expert, the former sub driver, Skip Tyler, played by the great character actor Jeffrey Jones. From Ferris Bueller's Day Off, the principal. The principal, and he's played so many great roles in the 80s, Emperor Joseph in Amadeus, uh, and the, the, the weird, quirky guests that come over to and Beetlejuice, just a great actor. He's so subdued here, though. It's almost like funny to, to see him in this role. Yeah. And we may talk about him in a different episode of Subgenre in a different season, but he is in one of my favorite under-the-radar movies called Ravenous. If you have not seen Ravenous, please see Ravenous and then join me in another season. But yes, please continue. Goes to see Jeffrey Jones. Yeah, and Jeffrey Jones kind of figures out that this is this stealth engine propulsion system called a caterpillar drive and that could make this sub completely undetectable to sonari this is way bad it's way bad it's way bad it could it could park nuclear warheads off the coast and no one would know anything about it until it's all over so over on the red october ramius has some plan going right we're still a little hazy as to what it is but it starts by killing the political officer that's on board this Russian sub. You got, you kind of got to assume there's a political officer on board any Russian sub and basically telling him where I am going, you cannot go. This dude cannot be a part of this, whatever adventure these guys are going on. And to cover it up, um, he makes up the excuse that the, the political officer slipped on his tea, which he gets to tell to the nervous ship's doctor played by who? The legendary Tim Curry, another of over-the-top amazing actor who is playing a very subdued role here. But when when he kills the political officer, he pulls Tim Curry aside. He pulls this nearby Cook's assistant uh, aside and says, hey guys, be my witnesses. I am taking the missile key from the political officer. I am putting it around my neck with my missile key. This makes Tim Curry go a little nuts. Captain! Uh, and <laughs> uh, because that, that, means, that means that Ramius can launch the nukes all by himself. Yeah, and clearly uh, this unnerves the doctor, uh, Tim Curry, and, uh, you know, creates some concern that uh, the, the, uh, the chain of command has been disrupted here, you know? Yeah, 
as much chaos as it potentially could cause, Ramius is, is in charge. He's very cool. Says, don't worry about it. And he orders the, the Caterpillar drive, which is the pride of the Soviet Navy at this point. He orders that thing in, uh, engaged for the first time. And as a U.S. attack sub called the Dallas Listen, Red October just up and disappears in front of them. And completely throws the Americans off balance. And, and the hunt is on, right? We, we, maybe we saw this sub, maybe we didn't. Even the Russians can't hear it now because Red October is out. But it's, it's out on a, on a parade lap so far as we know, or so far as they know at this point. But back in Washington, D.C., we've got Jack Ryan with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who he's been asked to brief, and the National Security Advisor, Jeffrey Pelt, played by actor Richard Jordan. Love Richard Jordan. <laughs> yeah, he was uh, Michael J. Fox's uncle in Secret of My Success. I mean, one of his many roles over a long career. But uh... <laughs> And he is playing the this kind of smarmy uh, uh, National Security Advisor, but he has something to say, and that is that the Soviet Navy has been ordered to find the Red October and to sink it, which throws the entire room into chaos. Ramius might be a madman. That's the only reason they can think of why that would happen. He must be coming to attack the United States. In the midst of all this chaos, Ryan slams his hand down on the table, says, son of a bitch! And voices an idea, and that is that he thinks Ramius is not coming to attack the U.S., but instead is trying to defect. Yeah, and from then on, he's kind of man against the world. He's got to convince everybody that he's right. He's working off of a hunch, and that's all he's got, an educated guess, and he's got to convince everybody that comes along that he's right and that they're wrong. And so Pelt says to him, look, I can give you a couple of days to prove this theory, but if you can't, we have to go and find this guy. Ryan says, why me? You know, why, why aren't you sending anybody else? And the answer is because he's expendable. So Mr. Expendable is put on the, the worst airplane ride in the entire world that's bouncing its way through a storm with the co-pilot giving him, the, you know, a, a horror story about chunky industrial weight puke uh, <laughs> coming from the last guy who, who threw up all over the radio. and Yeah, um, and I like that actor, Rick Dukeman. I forget where I've seen him before, but he showed up in a bunch of movies for a bunch of years. Uh, and I always liked seeing him, you know, because he's kind of like a comic personality wherever he is. And it's from that that you get kind of Jack's recurring you know, motto to himself, which is just next time, put it in a memo. Put it right. in a memo. Yeah. Next time, put it in a memo. So he's flown all the way out to the USS Enterprise, uh, you know, aircraft carrier. Uh, right. Meets Daniel Davis, Captain Charlie Davenport, right? Yeah, Davenport. Yes. He's the more unbelieving of the two between him and, and Fred Dalton Thompson of meeting. They, they meet Jack Ryan. Jack's dressed in naval blues, which he shouldn't be because he's not Navy. But, you know, it's, it's Admiral Greer's uh, uh, idea of a low profile, you know. So he, he tells them his he tells them his theory. They're like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. But we we find out in that scene that, you know, Jack is maybe more than just a, a brain, that he has combat experience, that he was in a chopper that went down. So he he's a tough dude. That's where we sort of break this wonky guy out for the audience and say, yeah, but underneath it is a guy who, who could get things done. He just is not doing that anymore. And then there is this day where things are just going to hell and there's a fire, there's an, an airplane that crashes on the, the deck of the Enterprise. There's a fire. And while all of that is going on, Jack is looking at this kind of digital map of where the Red October is and where this other sub called the Dallas is that has thought it heard something, but maybe it was a magma displacement, which is what the software uh, sometimes says that odd things are. He gets convinced that they found the Red October, and, and Davenport looks at this thing and says, your sub-captain, uh, he's got all these boats, he's got the entire Soviet Navy coming after him, they're pinging, 
the ocean. They're like, they're looking for something, but they're going too fast. They could never hear him. Yeah. And they kind of figure out that they're not listening. They're hurting him. They're, they're hurting him. They're driving him. Yep. The, uh, yeah, your, your captain's going to reach America. He's going to die within sight of it, which is a great line. Very, very cool setup for them. The second half of the movie, which becomes much more of an action kind of thriller type of situation, you know? And so, so what, what does that mean? It means that, that Ryan has got to uh, uh, get himself out to the Dallas to make contact with them. And the only way that he can do that is to get on a helicopter. And the only way the helicopter can get there is if, as Fred Thompson says, strip it down and turn it into a flying gas can, uh, <laughs> which they do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And I think that would be a great place to come back to. So uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back. This is Subgenre. If you've listened to other podcasts, and really by this point, we're going to assume you have, then you've probably heard our name. Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and creative video. We produce the shows you can't wait to binge, like the acclaimed Art Curious podcast. And of course, this thing, can we call it a show? Oh, sure we can. Subgenre. But did you know we're also available to creatively consult on your podcast too? That's right. We're here to turn your hobby into a professional-grade production that sounds just like the storytelling, discussion, or investigative podcast you download, all with help from our award-winning team. Treat your show seriously and get noticed with help from Kabunki. Mention this ad to get 10% off your first consultation. Find out more at K-A-B-O-O-N-K-I.com. That's Kabunki.com. Kabunki.com. Kabunki. That's going to leave a mark. You're listening to Subgenre. We are back here with Deep Thought talking about The Hunt for Red October. Yeah, man. What a cool movie. Halfway through it and... Uh, I'm not, even, sh- I'm not even sure we're halfway through it, but that, that's, that's okay. <laughs> we're, it's what, whatever, whatever. Whatever. It's, this is a great movie to break down. And so, so Mr. Expendable is flown out to the Dallas, which is the submarine that Red October disappeared in front of, risks his neck getting aboard this boat. He's had to be dragged aboard by a diver. And while he is there, he makes it his job to convince the captain, uh, whose name is Bart Mancuso, played by Scott Glenn, Jack Crawford from Silence of the Lambs, among many other awesome roles. Yeah, great actor. Uh, Saw most recently, at least I did, in the Netflix series Daredevil, where he played Daredevil's uh, mentor, you know, Stick. It was so cool. Great role. But uh, Ryan's got to convince this guy that Ramius doesn't mean any harm, and so he takes a gamble. And he says that he believes that at the top of the hour, when the Red October does one of these maneuvers, it's called a crazy Ivan, where they kind of clear the baffles behind them by turning sharply left or right, that when he does that, he is going to go to starboard. Um, which is a complete guess, uh, but the gamble pays off and Mancuso starts to believe maybe Ryan knows what he's talking about. And so he reveals their position to Red October. Yeah. And that was definitely one of the coolest sequences, just how Jack Ryan just puts himself out there and it's such a cool scene combining those practical special effects with kind of the tension in the control room of the Dallas Great. Loved it. Loved it. The captain, uh, Mancuso, is then able to relay Jack Ryan's message over to the Russians and tell them, hey, we think you're defecting. Uh, is that true? And if if that's true, uh, can you respond with one ping, please? Which, which, <laughs> Vasily, 
One ping. One ping only. <laughs> One ping only. Just like that. And and that is what they do. Uh, Ramius agrees. That is what he's trying to do. And so a plan hatches. But, but, and this it just gets more complicated, this plot. That's where we're going on about this. It's a complicated, twisted plot. But then there's an explosion on the Red October. And the explosion seems to be caused by sabotage. And so Ramius and the rest of his officers who are in on it are forced to disengage the Caterpillar drive, even though this means that they can now be heard in the water. They're not stealth anymore, which really sucks for them because they're trying to sneak away to the United States. And they think that they might get away with it, but then they get heard. They get heard by their own people. The Russians are trying to sink this boat with uh, every type of ocean-going vessel that they can, uh, planes in the air dropping torpedoes. So they get a torpedo locks onto them, a Russian torpedo, and they're maneuvering through this cool underwater canyon at incredible speeds, and this torpedo's after them. It's great, and Ramius, being the captain that he is, is able to kind of make these really tight maneuvers in the, in the canyon that they're doing. The torpedo misses them, but the damage is done. And the torpedo explodes. It shakes the ship. The crew panics. Their own Navy is shooting the, shooting at them. Why would that be? So Ramius and his officers are forced to accelerate their timeline for getting the crew the hell off the ship. So then to make things uh, even worse, there's a radiation alarm that, that <laughs> sounds. And the entire crew has to evacuate the Red October. But it's okay, because it seems like that might not be a real radiation alarm. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is a great ploy by Ramius and the officers that want to defect to save their crew members who are not part of this, this entire ploy. Uh, they basically fake this radiation leak to get to surface the ship and get them all off in rafts. And the cool thing is that Jack Ryan thought about this and figured that this was the way that Ramius was going to save his crew and be able to kind of continue with his officers on his true mission. And it's and it's kind of this bigger subterfuge that Ryan and Ramius and everybody else involved is trying to pull off is now we've got all of these crewmen off the sub. We've got this uh, this big Navy ship, the Reuben James, that's, you know, firing shells across the bow as part of the illusion. And Ramius tells Tim Curry, the doctor, you know, get everybody aboard the rafts. Me and the, <laughs> me and the officers are going to go below and scuttle the ship. <laughs> Which is great because Tim Curry just buys it hook, line, and sinker, and uh, just thinks that the captain is just the greatest Soviet hero of all time. You'll, you'll, you'll get going the down order the of ship. Lenin for this, Captain. <laughs> But, but what happens, right? Do, do they do that? Of course not. They get in the uh, in the Red October. They take it below. So to all the crew, to the doctor, it looks as if they have gone down to do what they said. But instead, what's happening under the water is that Jack Ryan and Bart Mancuso and, and everybody else that they can gather is in a little rescue sub, uh, Skip Tyler's rescue sub that we saw at the beginning of the film when we went to go check on the doors. And uh, they head over to the Red October uh, and go inside and accept Ramius's request for asylum and everything. Uh, everything's kind of going to plan. Yeah, of course, uh, that's not going to last very long no. because then uh, who appears that's kind of sporadically appeared throughout the movie, but uh, one of Ramius's premier kind of protégés in his own uh, commanding his own attack sub and uh, ready to kind of destroy his mentor, you know, against yeah. his, you know, better judgment. Yeah, and this is this is Captain Tupolov, played by, would you call it the very sweaty Stellan Skarsgård? The very sweaty, the very ubiquitous. Uh, what movie hasn't Stellan Skarsgård been in recently? Uh, you know, just, but yes, not never this sweaty. Well, this actually sounds like the perfect time to talk about some subplots. Subplot detected. And in this 
particular film, good Lord, there are at least three sizable subplots in this thing. Maybe let's take it one by one, starting with the first one and our sonar operator on the Dallas, Seaman Jones. Yeah, uh, Seaman Jones, E. Jones, uh, Courtney B. Vance, the great actor from, uh, of course, from uh, American Crime Story playing Johnny Cochran. Fantastic. He is an expert at sonar and he's stationed on the Dallas. The Red October appears and then seems to disappear. And he thinks he hears singing when they disappear. His computer tells him it was just a magma displacement. But he's convinced that the computer is wrong. Yeah, the magma displacement thing is like uh, what the computer says when it doesn't know what else to say. And and so it, it kind of chases its tail. Yeah, but he convinces the captain that they've discovered a new type of Russian sub and Mancuso's willing to go hunting for it. And so this is how the U.S. gets involved in this hunt for Red October. As a subplot to have this kind of mystery of did I hear it or didn't I hear it and Jonesy actually kind of getting into the seat of Ryan and having to convince other people of a theory that he has that, you know, others may not believe. A fantastic subplot. We could go on about it forever, but there's another one to talk about, which is in uh, back in Washington, D.C., on dry land. You've got Jeffrey Pelt, the national security advisor, uh, having this series of conversations with the Soviet ambassador, Andre Lysenko. Yeah, you remember him as the big baddie from uh, Lethal Weapon 2. Diplomatic and immunity. This is a great thing that recurs throughout the movie. Pelt is pleading with this guy. You know, Pelt kind of knows what's going on. He knows there's a sub out there and it's sneaking away and the Soviet Navy is after it. But he's he's trying to get a sense of, of what the Soviets are thinking. And he, he, he tells Lysenko, you know, wars are started this way, Mr. Ambassador. You got to keep me up on what's going on. The conversation about, ah, we don't know what's going on. It's just a it's just a normal thing. Don't worry about it. Morphs into Lysenko admitting that they have lost a sub and that some of the officers on the su- on the sub are sons of party officials. Pelt offers his assistance. Lysenko says, yeah, no, thank you. Until later, when it gets even more dire for them to find the Red October, Lysenko <laughs> changes his gears and says, yeah, you know, when you offered to help us, would you do that? Because uh, Ramius has gone crazy. He is going to come to the United States. He's going to fire his missiles at the U.S. And you probably want to sink him just like we do. And so... <laughs> It's an insane couple of conversations that finally gets this lovely capper at the end where after Red October is recovered by the Americans, you know, Pelt gets to feign this incredulity and Lysenko sheepishly gets to tell him that they have lost another sub. And we're talking about the Kanabalov. And uh, Pelt gets to say, Andre, you've lost another submarine. Lost another submarine. It's just great, and it's kind of like this light southern drawl. It's it's great. <laughs> and, the, and the third subplot, as if two were not enough, third subplot is that subplot with Captain Tupolov, with Stellan Skarsgård being the hunter, second hunter, third hunter, I don't know, coming after the Red October, but it's really the, the story of the, the student trying to, to best his master. And when you break it out like this with like three subplots with an already convoluted, convoluted kind of main plot line, what's interesting is how well these subplots are woven together. I mean, it's a kind of a testament to the, the way that the movie was edited, to McTiernan's kind of direction, that, that these the complexity of it is really seamless you know it's it's the story overrides all the complexity and it's woven together so well in the vinyl prop yeah and within the hell within the confines of this show with the the major plot and all these subplots there is no way we could sit and and piece through every minute of this in any sort of reasonable time frame but those three subplots alone to me i could have watched an individual movie about each one of them they're they're that good yeah, you're right. I mean, just the subplot of the student trying to become the master, you know, 
that that was cool enough. You know, I don't think we got enough of that, but we got just enough to make us happy. And uh, Jonesy hears a who and uh, my jelly bean <laughs> dinner conversation with Andre. I mean, it's, we got we got two other movies we could watch. <laughs> we could go on forever, but that's subplots. And now let's see if we can find a way to wrap up this interesting, challenging narrative that is the hunt for Red October. So when we last left off, sweaty, sweaty Stellan Skarsgård in the Kanavalov was pursuing Marco Ramius and the Red October. He's there. He's waiting for his old teacher. He's got orders to take this guy down. And so he finds them and he attacks them. And uh, this is going to put this whole plan that was meticulously put together in danger. But again, Ramius comes to the rescue basically with his big brain. Yeah. And in one of the coolest sequences in the movie, just these subs trying to out and these brilliant sub captains, you know, Mancuso, Tupolov, Ramius, just the three of them trying to outsmart each other. Uh, and so what you've got is you've got Ramius asking Jack Ryan to sit in the driver's seat of a submarine, which he has never driven before, right? And Ramius has only (laughs) just met Jack Ryan and vice versa and saying, not run away from this torpedo, but turn into the path of it. And Captain Mancuso is like, the hell you will, you know, aiming yourself at a torpedo. But it turns out well because... uh, Red October is able to close the distance between itself and this approaching torpedo before the torpedo can arm. They've got safeties on them so they don't, you know, come back at you. And so they close the distance. It runs into the torpedo and destroys it. And there's no explosion. It it looks like everything is cool. Obviously, Ramius is the, uh, you know, hero of the moment, but uh, Tupolov is not an idiot. So he takes off the safeties and he's ready to fire again. Yeah. And in the meantime, as if that wasn't bad enough, the I killed the caterpillar saboteur shows up and starts firing a weapon inside the Red October and tries for Ramius, but doesn't quite get there. Yeah, I mean, the guy's shooting at everybody and he ends up killing uh, Ramius' second-in-command, Sam Neill. Vasily, in a very sad moment, he'll never get to see Montana, where he wanted to live once he defected. He he wanted a round American woman and to raise rabbits. Yeah, and to live in Arizona in the winter. And to live in Arizona in the winter. He might need two wives. He might need two wives. (laughs) And uh, the saboteur hoofs it off to the missile bay where he is presumably going to detonate a warhead. He can't fire one, but he can certainly detonate one. And so Ramius and Ryan give chase. Uh, In the chase, a few more gunshots. Ramius is hit in the shoulder, and we are left with Ryan's moment to play the hero. This is it. So gun in hand, he goes after the saboteur. And, you know, it's that tense moment where the guy who we know is the hero of the movie has to kind of deal with the the last kind of bad guy on the sub. You get this repeat of a refrain that we've heard throughout the movie from Jack Ryan as he's wandering through these giant red, you know, missile silos and there's gunfire and he's trying to get the guy who's going to release a, a, a nuclear weapon. Uh, we get this Jack next time, put it in a memo. It, it, <laughs> it's the refrain. Next time, I'm not doing this again. Put it in a memo. You're an analyst, idiot. Yeah, exactly. He's a low-level operative. He's a desk jockey. Put it in a memo. Don't be out in the field. But of course, four films later or three films later or whatever, <laughs> we know that that's just never going to be the case. And the reason why we have four five films later is because Ryan is actually able to sneak up on the saboteur who is in the last seconds of getting ready to detonate this warhead. Uh, They look at each other. They have that kind of high noon showdown and uh, with no other choice and seeing that the guy's about to do it, Ryan shoots and kills the guy. Gangster. Yeah. Yeah, straight up gangster style. Pistol sideways and everything, I think. I (laughs) I may be misremembering that, but that's how I like to think about it. 
So the exchange between Ryan and the saboteur is done. Uh, he is no longer a threat, but there is still a threat out there, and that is Captain Tupolov in the the sub, the Kanabalov. Yeah, and uh, this guy is pissed. And my and my man, because of him being so angry that the last torpedo didn't hit its target, has taken the safeties off his own torpedoes with his crew going, no, 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 bad idea, bad idea. They fire them anyway. Torpedo goes into the water. The Dallas appears out of nowhere and draws the, the torpedo away from the Red October. Red October blows its tanks. That was the Dallas, though. The Dallas oh, I'm sorry. You're, no, you're right. The, da- the Dallas blows its tanks. Go, That's why. That makes more sense. It makes absolutely more sense. Dallas blows its tanks, busts through the top. It looks like they've been scared out of the water. The Soviets yeah. on the t- the Soviets on the top here are being rescued. They're cheering. Oh, our captain is fighting the, the Americans. It's great. Um, but what happens is when that Dallas gets out of the way of these torpedoes that are chasing it, the torpedoes need something to chase. And what do they chase? They turn around for Tupolov. And you get this, you get this moment where uh, Tupolov's second in command is like, uh, I don't. I can't remember if his name was Yuri or or what, what Tupolov's first name was. Like Yuri, you arrogant ass! You've killed us. <laughs> Blows up Tupolov. The uh, the Kanavalov is gone. The waters are safe. Red October is able to finally make it to its destination. Ryan and his theory uh, about what uh, Ramius was up to. Ryan is vindicated. And Ramius finally arrives in the new world. And that's the plot of Red October. Let's take a break. What if, and follow me here, what if the Mona Lisa at the Louvre Museum in Paris is a fake? Or what if artist Vincent Van Gogh, you know, the sunflowers and starry night guy, he didn't kill himself, but instead was actually murdered. You'll hear these incredible stories and a lot more when you subscribe to the Art Curious podcast. How did a cutthroat rivalry between two Renaissance masters culminate in one of the greatest artworks of all time? And was a British painter actually the real Jack the Ripper? On Art Curious, host and, truth be told, my lovely voiced wife Jennifer Dassel explores the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. And do you need to love art or even know anything about it to love this show? Are you kidding me? Before listening to Art Curious, I knew exactly nothing about fine art or the weird and amazing stories that seem to follow around some of its most iconic works and artists. Like, how did Leonardo's Salvador Mundi become the most expensive artwork ever sold at auction? And where has it disappeared to ever since? A best-of recommendation by reviewers at Oh The Oprah Magazine, PC Magazine, Salon, Uproxx, it goes on and on. Art Curious is podcast storytelling for the art lover and the art novice, like me, and maybe you. It's the juiciest, the most shocking, and the most fascinating tales from the world of paintbrushes, printmakers, and patrons. Season 9 is out now, so subscribe today to the Art Curious Podcast with Jennifer Dassel and find out more about the show at artcuriouspodcast.com or by searching for Art Curious, that's one word, in your favorite podcast app. The Art Curious Podcast, that's A-R-T-C-U-R-I-O-U-S. The Art Curious Podcast, subscribe for Season 9 now. We're back. You're listening to Subgenre. I'm Josh Dassel here with my co-host Deep Thought, and we are talking about The Hunt for Red October. We have duly covered plot, and now it's time to geek out. (laughs) Awesome. So we've got a submarine captain trying to get away, and we've got a CIA analyst trying to capture him, and there's cat and mouse, and there is political intrigue, and there is humor, and I 
I don't know how to classify. I mean, you can call it a political thriller, right? But but it just seems to maybe kind of be in, in slightly a class of its own, this movie. It, it does. And uh, if I may ask you as a student of the movies, should we give props to the editor here? Should we give props to the director? Should we give props to the screenwriter? How is something like this woven together so seamlessly? It's it's yes, yes, and yes. It's, it's all of the above. And maybe even before diving into that, let's talk about what is a submarine movie, at least for the purposes of this show, of this season of this show. A submarine movie, to me, is not a movie that has submarines in it, right? When I say submarine movie or when I'm talking about the submarine genre, I am talking about a film where this sort of chain of command thing that Mm. happens on a submarine, this sort of upstairs, downstairs, you know, people on the bridge and everybody else kind of thing that goes on, the cat and mouse aspect of some sort of hunt, right? Which which is why I love that words in the in the title of this film and also of the book. When we're talking about submarine movies, or at least when I am, that's what we're kind of talking about here. And so when we're asking, you know, who can we give credit to or blame, I guess in some instances, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, for making that type of a movie here, I think certainly, certainly, certainly we're talking about um, some stupendous writing. The dialogue in this thing is awesome. Uh, and, and by the way, a script itself written by Larry Ferguson, who shows up in the movie. Yeah, yeah, as the, chief of the boat uh, during those scenes with Seaman Jonesy uh, on the Dallas. This is also Larry Ferguson who wrote Alien 3 uh, and also who wrote Beverly Hills Cop 2, one of which I like better than the other. (laughs) (laughs) I'm uh, confused as to which one that might be, so you'll have to fill me in on that later. Uh, Yeah, Uh, I'll fill you in Yeah, I kind of like both in equal parts, but I think I'm leaning towards Alien 3 as the better one. We'll definitely have a discussion later. Um, All right. (laughs) So yeah, Larry Ferguson writes a great script. John McTiernan, you know, does a very tight job of directing this edge of your seat thriller. And I think you also have to give a lot of props to things like set design here, to production design. This feels real. It doesn't feel like we're on a soundstage, which we were. I mean, this thing was, to my knowledge, built across five sound stages at Paramount. I mean, that's Oof. that's enormous. And it's they had crazy. It's crazy. And they had these these. Um, so you know, the the submarines are going up and they're going down. They have these gimbaled platforms that they had on these sound stages that could kind of tilt to you know, I think maybe as far as a sixty degree angle or something to simulate going up and down, which reportedly made Mr. Connery seasick. Well, I believe it because that scene where they dive and they're showing the dot, the kind of de- depth of the dive, kind of going through on that digital counter, you see the whole sub tilt. It's it's amazing. It feels real. You feel like sucked into it, you know? So you've got writing, you've got directing, you've got production design. And I think you have to give a special shout out. And I, I know that you're a fan to the composer, to Basil Polidorus. Yeah, uh, the composer of so many cool uh, movies in, in the 80s and beyond, uh, but so many great action movies, uh, so many kind of just iconic action movies of the 80s, you know, Robocop, Conan the Barbarian, just a cool composer. To and be and, and unfortunately, Serial Mom, I believe, with Kathleen uh, yeah. Turner. Yeah. So, so yeah, you've got, you've got this almost unstoppable package of people, I think, putting this film together, which for this kind of a movie, I mean, this, at the time, this was really something to take on. This was, I think, the book had been written by Tom Clancy a number of years before. The book and or the script had kind of floated around town for a number of years with people looking at it and going, this is un- this is unmakeable. Like, there's so much going on here that I have no idea how we would even begin to make this film. And finally, Paramount, I think, takes this thing on to make it. And, you know, sure enough, it's a success. 
let me think about what what else really sits with me about this movie because you know what it is it's the vibe there when 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 we talk about submarine movies certain submarine movies feel like oily messes right like we'll we'll talk we'll talk about <laughs> we'll talk about some other movies in this season um you know das boot among them that kind of fall into that this splits the difference for me between kind of like sweaty oily mess and sleek you know, almost like we were watching Top Gun, but also almost like we were watching, you know, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy or something like, like it's the Cold War thriller. There is some sort of unique vibe that comes off this film that I have always just loved. Yeah, I mean, if, if anything, I almost feel like it's it's complexity. It almost comes to a conclusion too too easily, you know, that that kind of Jack Ryan's hunch leads to this conclusion that Jack Ryan anticipated where he and Ramius these two people who had never met but kind of understood each other yeah. were just on the same trajectory. And if I had a critique of the film, it would be that it was just that ending was a bit too fat. But I'm willing to put up with that because it wove the complexity together, the subplots, the main plot, the action together so well. Let's go a direction with that. Would you have liked the film better if Ramius would have gone down with the ship? Like if it, if they tried and tried and in the end it didn't work out? No, because of course I want Connery to win. You know, I expect Connery to win. He's Bond. Uh, yeah, he's Bond. He's, you know, but the, I think 90s Connery was a different kind of Connery too. He he had a swagger. He had like a I can't lose kind of swagger that he hadn't had since the 60s. Right. Whether that's in this movie or The Rock or unfortunately that that horrible Michael Crichton movie was the Rising Sun. Rising Sun. Just rewatched yeah. that recently, by the way. It it uh, it does not hold up <laughs> as I suspected. <laughs> I got to rewatch it to see how much it doesn't hold up. No, it's not, it it's not, the, it's the not that time. bad, but it's not that good. But we'll put it we'll put it that way. But I mean, he just had a swagger. Like he had a can't lose kind of swagger in the '90s, like with all of his different hair pieces, like uh, <laughs> you know the ponytail in The Rock and the whatever the bowl cut in uh, Rising Sun. And, okay, you know. wait, we, like, let's pause. Let's let's talk for a second about the hair piece in Hunt for Red October because <laughs> first of all I guess it was a hair piece it wasn't like a really bad haircut it was a hair piece no no it was a hair piece I mean Connery's been going bald since Bond he wore a he wore a toupee in the, in the Bond movies as far as I know okay so you get you get this lovely look at it you know it's it's this little sort of like short like high top fade almost that he's got <laughs> going on and it's gray and it's weird and it just it doesn't belong in his head but somehow we we all accept it it, it worked it kind of gave him the, like I said it gave him the swagger like he had the swagger like he had never had I would say if you watch interviews of Connery in the eight early 80s like the never say never again era Connery he looked old okay yep. he looked old in the end touchables and i felt like he was younger and more like full of swagger <laughs> 10 years later in the 90s harold do that for you and i do that for <laughs> as legend has it now whether this is true i don't know but as legend has it like connery in in the beginning of the film wanted a ponytail and actually got the hair and makeup people to i guess clip on some sort of like raccoon tail ponytail on the back of his head and they shot some scenes with it. Yeah, and uh, what McTiernan was not happy about this at all. No, would you be if if Sean, if Sean Connery showed up in this little tiny like Golden Girls esque sort of sort of way? It's not even Golden Girls. It's the it's the grandma from Napoleon Dynamite. It's the it's the <laughs> the hair on her, and then you pin a ponytail on the back of it. And no, he did he he wasn't happy. And I think that uh, Jan de Bont who was the the DP on this, who would go on to direct films like uh, like Twister. Gotta love Twister. Nice, nice. Jan de Bont basically pulled him aside and said, you know, why exactly are you choosing to wear what looks like a limp d***? 
on the back of your head. <laughs> <laughs> something, something as Jan Devant, Jan Devant would say with a thicker accent. But you, you know, can you imagine the con- the accents in that conversation between Jan Devant and Sean Connery? I, it sounds like a priceless. I, I wish I could have been a fly on that wall. I need a reenactment. I need it. I- for sure. I mean, but I think like McTiernan, to his credit, has the ability to kind of put himself in a situation where things, I imagine Connery was a huge ego and not yeah. not a predictable kind of asset, right? Um, with the Scottish brogue and with the, you know, the ponytail and all that, and then without the ponytail, he kind of still turned it into something that we got behind, you know, yeah. in a big way. Yes, but then Jan DeBont makes his comment. Reportedly, Sean Connery went, "Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to have a limp on the back of my head," <laughs> and and decided to take the ponytail off, which then necessitated Mace Newfeld, the the producer, and uh, and John McTiernan having to go back and figure out how to reshoot some of these very pivotal scenes that they had already shot. And that is how you get uh, what is referred to as the twenty thousand dollar toupee. Unbelievable. There there was another story that kind of follows this movie around, and I heard it way back in the day. I heard it slightly differently than maybe what it actually was, but turns out it, it may, be, may be true, which is that they may, in the course of having made this movie, revealed some classified technology uh, to the world. It comes from, I can't, I'm not sure if it came out of Tom Clancy's book directly or if it came from uh, the research for the movie, and I think it was the latter, but you had the primaries for this movie. So you, you definitely had Sean Connery and you definitely had Alec Baldwin, and I'm sure you had... Uh, uh, the director, and I'm sure you had the producer, and I'm sure you had the writer, who all got to do some up-close research on these U.S. attack submarines, nuclear submarines, and as part of it, some of them got to ride overnight on these subs and uh, view what was going on and take notes and use that, and I think Connery even got sworn in or something and got to command a British submarine for a short period of time while they're under there. So, but, but in doing that, you just, you absorb what you absorb. And I think when Ferguson went back and wrote the script, uh, he uses this word or, or uses something that refers to what's called gravimetry, which is kind of this technology that is sort of a silent navigation thing for the U S Navy, which at that point, I guess had not been declassified. No way. So he actually saw it during his kind of research and then he kind of accidentally dropped it in the script. I don't know if he saw it or if he heard some sort of reference to it or if it was just, who knows, who knows where, you know, where stuff lodges in a, in a writer's brain, but it it came out the other side on the paper and ended up as, as some sort of bits of technical dialogue uh, somewhere in the film. And uh, the Navy noticed the Navy noticed. <laughs> the Navy noticed and uh, scuttled the program altogether. And, and yeah, I couldn't tell you what happened to uh, to Gravimetry or <laughs> I'm pronouncing that correctly or or some other program that, that uses it, but it definitely was a moment of concern, and I'm sure that there were firings that came from that. Some rear admirals like cancel it, cancel it, cancel it, cancel the program. <laughs> we got to cancel Gravimetry. Somebody give me a dictionary. I got to spell it on a memo. <laughs> The special effects stick with me. I mean, this is the kind of the last hurrah of practical effects before Jurassic Park kind of made it made it all extinct because a, a lot of kind of the danger is implied. These weren't like super detailed underwater models. I don't even think they were floating in water. From what I understand, there were smoke effects and these were hung uh, in the air. They were, they were flying am, submarines? They were flying submarines and then they put this 
cool kind of effect in front where you you know if you look closely you can see on the screen there's like all kinds of krill swimming around or something <laughs> uh, but th that really adds to the sense of depth it adds to the sense of scale and it also adds to the sense of kind of being immersed in water it allows my mind to fill in the blanks and that's kind of what i like about practical effects uh, to some degree is that you get to be a part of the process. Every little scale on every fish isn't kind of drawn in for you. And I love that about that. I love the underwater scenes. Maybe a good way to wrap up this segment is to talk about, since we're talking about, you know, filmmaking and, and kind of uh, unique little bits and bobs in, in uh, Hunt for Red October, there is this scene that Hunt for Red October is kind of known for that deals with the Russian language and the American or the English speaking audience and how we get to understand what the Russians are saying. And it comes when Ramius is in his cabin. He's with Putin, the political officer. They're talking about, you know, what the mission is going to be. And uh, they're quoting uh, an Indian proverb. And we're talking about nuclear war. And in the midst of quoting a passage from Revelation uh, in the Bible, the camera slowly pushes in on Putin's mouth as he's speaking Russian until we get the one word that is the same in Russian as it is in English, which is Armageddon. Such a cool shot. And then the camera pulls itself all the way back out. And as it starts to pull back out, they're speaking English. And it's this transitional moment where we understand in our brains that they're still speaking Russian, but now all of us can can kind of understand what they're saying. And I think it's that shot, maybe as a film fan and a filmmaker, that really is one of the biggest things that stuck with me from this movie. And has that, you tell me, has that been kind of replicated by other filmmakers since? Or have uh, you, you know seen what? It? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Now, it doesn't mean it didn't happen, but, but I can't recall call another place where I've seen that transition either before or since. I, I guarantee you it came from somewhere, but I have not seen it used since, and I think maybe that's because they did it best here. Well, speaking of artful transitions, so that sound means that we have reached the uh, segment I am calling You Can't Handle the Truth. It is our quiz segment where I am going to ask our guest host a series of questions. If you can answer all three of those questions, uh, today you are playing for a tuft of Sean Connery's silver spike $20,000 mane that he was wearing <laughs> on his head. Hopefully you can answer enough questions to earn that and uh, you can put it on your mantle. I'm winning this. I, I ain't going home till I win this. All right. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Here comes question number one. Sailors aboard a U.S. ballistic nuclear missile submarine spend a long time away from shore, and they have to entertain themselves however they can. Which of these activities does the submariner slang visiting Sherwood Forest refer to? Is it A, trying to slip into the officer's mess unnoticed? B, jogging between the tubes in the nuclear missile compartment? Or C, you know that thing lonely dudes do alone? This time there's company. Ooh. Uh, I, I want to say C has a different name altogether, so I'm going to go with B, which is jogging through the... Uh... Jogging between the tubes in the nuclear missile compartment? Yeah. That is correct. You are one of three so far. All right. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Question number two. In 1620, the Dutch engineer Cornelis Drebbel reportedly built the first navigable submarine for the British Navy by doing what? Was it A, sealing himself inside a barrel, then asking two swimmers to pull him across the Thames River while he yelled commands through a small metal tube? B, gluing two rowboats together, one right side up, one upside down, and affixing a series of oars to the side? Or C, stealing a design from ancient Rome and taking credit himself? That's got to be C. C, stealing a design from ancient Rome. 
Yes. I am oh. sorry. No, actually, it was B, gluing two rowboats together, one right side up and the other one upside down, no. sticking a bunch of oars no. on the outside. All right. I thought so like Romans might have figured this out way back when. Uh huh. You. That was wrong. You are. You are one and one, man. You are one and one. Right. You got to get one more. All right. All right. All right. This all time right. I might uh, ask for a hint. If you need a hint, you let me know. All right. All here right. we go. Last question. On the internet, and I guess elsewhere, a noob is short slang for a newbie or a first-timer. On a U.S. submarine, although the meaning is similar, noob, N-U-B, is actually an acronym. What does it stand for? Is it A, non-useful body, B, new ugly boatmate, or C, no underwater balance? Uh, Give me a hint. Uh, I think I know which one it is, but give me a hint. Uh, if their wives and their girlfriends knew the term, they might also use it. Say a non-ugly body, then. Uh, well, you got, which one you, was non-ugly You got body? Non, non-useful body, new ugly oh, boatmate, or no underwater balance. Oh, new ugly boatmate. New ugly boatmate, B? B. B. I'm sorry. Ah. The answer was actually A, non-useful body. A, a noob, uh, uh, when you're on a submarine, there is only so much air and so much food. And if you are not pulling your weight or you don't know how to pull your weight yet, you are a non-useful body just taking up space that people who do know what they're doing uh, should be getting instead of you. So Completely I, makes sense. So I am, I am, I am terribly sorry. I'm terribly sorry. We, you didn't win the, uh, the Sean Connery lock of hair that we would somehow find and, and give to you, but that's okay. I think you have a question uh, that you're going to try to stump me with. Am I right? I am, and this question involves our lead, our very handsome Jack Ryan, and this has to do with Alec Baldwin's background. So my question is, which one of these uniquely American experiences was one of Alec Baldwin's ancestors involved in? Ooh. A, did they strike it rich in the California gold rush? B, did they arrive here on the Mayflower? C, did they pass through Ellis Island on their way to becoming an American? Or D, were they involved in carving Mount Rushmore? Oh, wow. Um, Knowing Alec Baldwin, uh, you know, anything is possible. So I think that them arriving at Ellis Island seems too vanilla. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to rule that one out. I think that the Mayflower that came over on the Mayflower possible, but still doesn't seem nutty enough for the bald ones. Struck it rich in the California Gold Rush. That could explain uh, why there is a Baldwin clan, like how they could afford the clan. They got lots of California Gold Rush money. But I think I am going to go, yeah, I think I'm going to go with D, that one of the Baldwins helped carve Mount Rushmore. I'm sorry. The correct answer was they arrived here on the Mayflower. You put the sniffers on and you knew that I was uh, full of crap on the Ellis Island. I, one, I, so good, I, good for you. I talked myself out of the real answer because I, I thought, you know, he's got those I came over on the Mayflower sort of looks. You know, you could put a pilgrim hat on him and he it would yeah. look right. It would look right. Well, doggone it. I didn't get my question right. You didn't get a majority of yours right. So <laughs> what that means to me, I think, is that we are both winners because we are both losers together. And that's what's important is togetherness. Don't you think? I, I do think so. And uh, losing gracefully. And losing gracefully. Let's do the deep dive. In the deep dive, we talk about something that is related to the film or not, we can talk about whatever we want to. And uh, today, I think we might talk about the films of John McTiernan. I hear you're a fan. I think we mentioned I'm a that. fan. I'm a fan. Uh, I 
didn't know I was a fan until I realized that I liked all of these movies and they happened to be made by the same director. That, I figured that out when I was a kid. So I kind of sought out even the critically panned McTiernan movies. Because... And there have been a few critically panned <laughs> John McTiernan movies, if I am not uh, incorrect. There have been, and I actually, uh, just as one in particular that I enjoyed, and I even saw it in the theater, me and my buddy, when, when we were kids, was uh, Last Action Hero, oh, God. which I thought was a fun movie, man. Critics I, be damned, you know? <laughs> I saw Last Action. I have a memory, I, I think I think maybe it's traumatic, of seeing, the, of seeing Last Action Hero, and I think I saw it at a dollar theater. I'm pretty sure I did, too. Interesting movie, but have you seen Last Action Hero since? I've seen it a couple times, but not very recently. So I need to rewatch it because I'm probably seeing it through kind of kids' glasses. Right, right. I would, I would be curious watching that now if it holds up for you. Yeah, I just remember Charles Dance before Game of Thrones being this menacing bad guy with the kind of uh-huh. interchangeable eyeball and all this <laughs> cool stuff. And even then, I thought it was playful. This is the thing is, I didn't. it didn't take itself seriously. Yeah. It was kind of over the top. It was zany. It combined genres. You know, he, and he acknowledges that he had to cut a bunch of corners to make that movie, but it, it was a lot of fun, you know? Every movie can't be buttoned up, like, perfect from top to bottom. And it wasn't, but it was fun, you and know? Speaking of movies that were not buttoned up, how about Rollerball? Oh, my gosh. Now, this is one movie that I didn't even realize till recently that that was a McTiernan movie. I haven't seen Rollerball, and that's something that I got to see because I've heard it's literally his worst. He did do, I'll give him credit for this, he did do a a couple of few movies that I, I really do enjoy. Die Hard, of course, Predator, which is an amazing movie. And it's hard for me to believe that he did that before Die Hard. But yeah, uh, Predator, Die Hard, and one that I think we may end up talking about on a different season of subgenre, uh, which is The Thomas Crown Affair. That was one I really, really enjoyed. Of course, the Steve McQueen version is a classic, but uh, I think the Pierce Brosnan version was great. Uh, and and yeah, things like Predator uh, and uh, even um, a movie like 13th Warrior, Mm-hmm. And to some degree, Hunt for Red October, they kind of play in this area of like building up your expectations. That's what I think is really powerful about him is that he'll kind of hint at the impending kind of doom or he'll hint at this kind of outcome and he'll really let you simmer on it and create your own kind of vision of it before kind of revealing what it, what the enemy looks like or what the kind of uh, yeah. the worst outcome possible is, you know? He's able to tell small stories really well. He's able to bring in individual characters yeah. of which there are often many, many in, in each of his movies. And he's able to give each of them a life and a, and a background, even if they only say a few lines. I, I love that he'll cast a diverse group of people just because he can, you know? Yeah, definitely one of the most memorable directors of this era. Uh, Definitely a guy who has brought us films that we are going to continue loving year after year and potentially even talking about on this show. John McTiernan. I'm glad we got to talk about him. I'm glad I got to talk to a John McTiernan uh, super fan. Yeah, and I'm embarrassed that I haven't seen Rollerball. Now's the time. (laughs) (laughs) So that sound means it is time for Rave Rental or Refund. This is where we uh, give the final opinion, our final opinions on this particular movie. Is it a rave? Would we go see it in the theater? Would we pay good money? Is it a rental? Do we wait for it to come home and get it for a dollar? Or is it a refund? Do we demand our money back? Deep thought. It's a rave for me. It was a great movie. I enjoyed it. I think I gave it a seven on IMDb, a seven out of 10 stars. And that's a good rating for me. It's not The Godfather, but it certainly was very entertaining, well put together, great action. I enjoyed it. 
I'm giving it a rave. It's a rave from Deep Thought. It is absolutely a rave for me. This movie is one of the best submarine movies. I think we could fight about whether it's this or a couple of the others that we're going to talk about this season. It is absolutely one of the best films of the 90s, without question. It is absolutely one of the best political uh, action movies, I guess, specifically, if we're talking about subgenres. So, so yeah, for me, it's a rave. I'm glad we agree on something here. <laughs> That's it. That's it. We've gotten to the end of the hunt for Red October. I have been here with my good buddy, Deep Thought. Where can they find you? What do you got going on? Man, all I got to say is coming in hot. This is your boy, Deep Thought, amateur film buff, mostly speaking off the cuff, always tough, never rough. That's all I got, bro. Wow. I didn't expect it, but I'm so glad that we got it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Deep Thought. Thank you. You've been listening to Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, Deep Thought. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza, featuring Solar Flare. If you love the show and need more, subscribe and leave a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us. Believe me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us just like you did. For even more subgenre and to support us with a donation, visit our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, both at subgenrepod. We'll welcome you back soon for our next episode. But in the meantime, remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be good to who you meet. That's a wrap. Kabunki.